My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's first church in Corinth, and we are reading 1 Corinthians 13. It's on page 1,786 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, starting on page 1,786, and I'll read the last verse in chapter 12, sort of the lead-in. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I, when I became a man, I put a childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, now, if, y'all have, uh, if you've been paying really close attention the past several weeks at church, you may have been, you may have been surprised at what our scripture readings were for this morning, um, because I had mentioned that we were going to stick with the lectionary for the season between Christmas and the start of the season of Lent, and 1 Corinthians, which I think we can all agree, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. Um, as beautiful as it is, it's not one of the lectionary texts for this Sunday. I called sort of a late audible, decided to go in a different direction, um, sort of at the last minute, and the reason I decided to pivot is I felt, I felt borderline guilty about the sheer weight of, of the challenge that I kind of put to y'all at the end of the worship service last week as we were considering Jesus' commandment to love our enemies from Luke 6. I spent most of the sermon sort of building up the significance and the gravity of that command, that it's the most ambitious and well-developed moral philosophy in the history of humanity, and it's our solemn honor and our solemn duty to try to live it out as best as we can. Everything comes down to that commandment, love your enemies. Um, and then when we got to the, to the sort of how question, As in like, all right, preacher, you have convinced us that this is important. So how do we do it? 
I basically just said, uh, you, are, you are on your own. Uh, that is up to you to figure out. And I think that's okay in some instances. Sometimes I really do think that my job is sort of to encourage you to face one of the Bible's challenges head on. Um, but, but as I was attempting to approach that challenge myself this past week, um, I realized just how much I had left unsaid and how much more there is to explore around this topic of divine love and our own call to exhibit divine love to all of the people in our lives, even our enemies. And so I thought it would be a good idea to spend another Sunday together meditating about these things. Um, and there's no better place to turn, maybe in the entire Bible, than to learn, to learn about love than Paul's beautiful, masterful poem that he just snuck into his first letter to that church in Corinth. Um, and so we're going to read through and think through that poem together this morning. And then we will finish by turning back to Luke 6, actually, to that quote from Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain, to his crazy instruction to love our enemies. And we'll see if it makes any more sense than it did last week. But before, before we jump into Paul's poem, I need to convince you that, that we Americans, um, we unfortunately, we don't know what love is. And uh, it's not our fault, necessarily. Like I mentioned last week, the English language does not do us any favors here. There's only one word for love in English. I can, I can say and be grammatically correct, I love tacos, I love my wife, and I love open world RPG video games. Those are all legitimate sentences. But think about the different things that I mean there. And one of those sentences, I mean that I have a, just a general preference for tacos. And the next one, I mean that I have made a lifelong covenantal commitment between God and humanity to my wife. And in the last one, I just mean that I use these things to pass time and to, you know, kill time and that kind of thing. And I use the word love for all of those. It's just, it's not a very helpful word. It's kind of a useless word. Greek has many different words for love. And I brought up the term for divine love last week, Jesus love last week, which is agape. It's agape. But coming from our culture, we can't just project our own incredibly broad word, L-O-V-E, onto agape. We have to assume that we don't know what love is, that we don't know what agape is. We have to try and let the Bible tell us to build up our definition sort of from the ground up. And when you do that, when you go through the Bible, you find that as the Bible tries to describe to us what love is, what agape means, it doesn't seem to describe a feeling, not the flutter of the heart, not even primarily a strong kind of emotional attachment. Love describes an action and a way of relating to other people. The prime example of this, of course, is the life and the actions of Jesus Christ. So many times, Paul, when he is specifically elaborating on the word love, he does so by reminding us of what Jesus did for us. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus loved me. How did he do that? He gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5 says, follow God's example by walking in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Maybe the most famous Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' actions towards us are the epitome, the best possible example of agape. It's a love that seeks the redemption and the reconciliation of the other person, the other party, no matter who they are. And Paul elaborates on what this kind of love looks like in daily life through the, the beautiful little poetic essay on agape that we find in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're just going to kind of walk through the body of this poem line by line together. Uh, but before we do that, I want to give a little bit of a, a sort of framing concept. And I got this illustration from 
Uh, Tim Mackey, who is the, the guy behind the Bible Project, I've probably mentioned him before. He's one of my favorite Bible teachers. Highly recommend his teachings. You can find them you know, on the internet. And when he teaches this, when he teaches 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he has this metaphor. You, you all know what a black hole is? You at least heard that phrase. I'm not asking you if you understand what a black hole is. I'm just wondering if you've heard of that before. Got some nods. So the black hole is like one of the one of the best illustrations of just how bizarre and crazy our universe really is. We have no idea like what this world is made up of. The black hole is a star that has collapsed in on itself to the point that the center of it has so much mass and so much gravity that that light cannot escape it. Even light gets sucked down to the ground like apples fall to the ground in the earth. So it's just this big black hole in the middle of space. Anything that comes near it gets pulled into its center of mass and it gets, it gets scrunched down on itself. Time and space are scrunched in on itself in the middle of a black hole, crushing everything that comes near it. So I want you to think of a black hole, and then I want you to think about a cell, as in like the building block of life, uh, smallest uh, version of life. And, and I'm going to suggest to you that a cell is sort of like the opposite of a black hole. And a black hole, all of its energy sucks inward towards itself. It consumes and it crushes and it compresses everything. The cell, the basic building block of life, is amazing because it has, it has an outward generative overflowing energy to it. A cell will split in half and become two cells. Then those will split in half and you'll have four and then eight and then 16. Eventually you might have an organelle, like a nucleus. This is all from what I remember from AP Biology. So, you know, be kind with me if I'm off. But then it become a heart, maybe even a human being. And then that human being reproduces in his offspring and suddenly the earth is full of life. Cells are, are incredible in that they push outward. Their energy overflows outward. And Tim Mackey uses this illustration to suggest that humans in relationship with one another, their default tendency is to operate like a black hole, to suck inward, to, to use other people and other relationships primarily for their own needs and wants and desires. Even people that we per- profess to love, oftentimes we end up thinking and acting in terms of ourselves. Do they make me happy? What am I getting out of this relationship? And Jesus' love, in contrast, is more like the cell, and that it is outward. It overflows. It multiplies. Jesus' love does not turn inwardly or think inwardly. It doesn't think in terms of self, but rather pushes outward to other people. And so let's go through some of Paul's beautiful poem with this in mind. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, If you want to follow along, what page is it on? 1,786 in the Pew Bible. Love is patient. We're just going to deal with the body of the poem um, this morning. Love is patient and love is kind. The first thing that Paul suggests to us is that love gives time. Love, Love has time to give. It's not in a rush. It is time to talk. It is time to connect, time to reach out. Love is willing to wait to wait for, for people, for people to change, for people to get their act together, wait for apologies. It doesn't have deadlines. It doesn't have ultimatums. Love is patient. Love is kind. It treats interactions with people as an opportunity to positively impact them rather than in terms of what I want to get out of this interaction, which, which is really hard for us in our modern life because you know we interact with friends and family, but so many of our interactions by their very nature, are so that we can get stuff. Like, think about the people you meet in your life. Oftentimes, it is a cashier at a grocery store. 
or it is an insurance agent that you're calling because of health insurance reasons, where the very nature of the conversation is that you want to get something out, get something out of that interaction. And so what would it, what would it look like to treat those act interactions as a way to positively impact that person rather than to just get through the line as quickly as possible or as cheaply as possible or as efficiently as possible? That's a really tough challenge, and it's one that you can apply uh, as soon as you walk outside of church today. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. What I take from these lines is love is able to genuinely and sincerely celebrate the good fortune of others. And this, there's a certain phase of life that I can't decide if I am, I'm hoping that I'm sort of coming out of it, but I might just be right in the middle of it. But there's a certain phase of life as after you've graduated college and you've started your career or whatever, and you and all your friends are making really big decisions about what kind of career you should pursue, what kind of life that you want to build for yourself. And there are a lot of wonderful things about this phase of life, uh, but, but one of the real challenges that I have found about it is that when someone else has a major success, like their career move really paid off, or their relationship is going really, really well, or whatever, you're happy for them, for sure. But at the same time, if you're not careful, your black hole tendency can kick in for a minute. And you can end up turning that interaction into an opportunity for you to think, well, shoot, should I have done that? Maybe I should have gone to law school or whatever. Uh, um, Why haven't I gotten there yet? Am I behind? How did they get there ahead of me? And rather than facing outward, rather than celebrating what is going on with your friend or your loved one, you're tempted to shift it until you are back at the center of it. And love, I think Paul is suggesting, fights against those thoughts. Love celebrates the good fortune of others. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Let's skip briefly down to verse 7. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. Love is, is constant. It's a safe place. Uh, the, these lines make me think of, of a mother's love. Or I, I should maybe more specific, maybe my mother's love. I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody here, but uh, there's something amazing about the love from someone where you are, you're not concerned if it will run out or if this phone call will be the last phone call they've got in their, in their energy bank um, or that you'll mess up one too many times. The constancy of love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. We'll wrap up our talk on Paul's poem right there for now. Um, we spent a few more minutes for more fully fleshing out our understanding of agape, outward love. It's generative. It seeks the good of another person. It's the opposite of the normal human tendency to be like a relational black hole, sucking anything and everything into our orbit. And so we're going to turn back to Luke 6, Jesus' way over the top moral instructions to love your enemies and um, all those other things that he says to see if they make more sense. But before we get before we do that, um, it, it wouldn't really be a Caleb Punt sermon, I don't think, if I didn't throw some big vocabulary at y'all. Uh, so get ready for your for your weekly excursion into some potentially unfamiliar slash nerdy territory. Here we go. In college, I uh, participated in something called Ethics Bowl. It was similar to debate, to debate club. Basically, your team was given a really difficult ethical situation that was often taken from the newspapers. I remember one big one was the question of targeted drone strikes. Like in America, takes an unmanned predator drone and like bombs a, a suspected terrorist base and that kind of thing. So you would, you would hear that sort of situation, and then your team prepares a response to that, what we should do, how we should approach it, based on ethical and moral principles. And then the other team would respond, and you would win or lose. Now, in this sort of setting, there are 
three different moral philosophies that we would use all of the time to write our different cases, uh, three sort of standard approaches. And the first, here comes your first big vocabulary word, is uh, deontology. This moral philosophy is summed up with the phrase, duty to obey the law. Duty to obey law. Under the framework of deontology, morality is a matter of obeying a certain set of precepts or rules. Maybe those rules come from a government. Maybe they were derived by logic. Maybe God gave them to us. But once you have your set of rules, you do not deviate from them, no matter what. No matter what the external situation is. A deontologist is someone who reads the Ten Commandments, reads thou shalt not kill, and becomes a 100% pacifist, will not take the life of another person under any circumstances, and so, you know, would not do a targeted Jones strike, theoretically. The second major moral philosophy is called utilitarianism, also maybe more helpfully called consequentialism. The key phrase for consequentialism is the most good for the most amount of people. In any ethical situation, a consequentialist is thinking, not what rules should we apply here. They're thinking about the outcome, the consequences. What set of consequences do I want to bring about? And how can I bring about the most good or the most happiness? So if we're considering a targeted drone strike against a terrorist base, a deontologist might look at something like the Ten Commandments and be like, nope, we can't do that. And then just follow that instruction found in those rules. A consequentialist will look at the outcome. Will bombing this base save more people than than not taking that action? Will it increase the good? Will it increase happiness? If so, then it's justified. If not, then it's not. Third and final sort of framework system for ethics is called virtue ethics. And virtue ethics can sometimes sound really strange because in this school of thought, morality is considered not a matter of finding the right set of rules and not a matter of sort of calculating the greatest amount of good. No, virtue ethics says that the search for morality, what is right or wrong, should focus on the moral agent. In other words, on the person. To give it its own phrase or one-line summary, virtue ethics says that what, are right or, what is right or wrong in any situation is what a wise person would do in those circumstances. This is a little bit more abstract, but stay with me for a second. Let's think about it this way. If you needed to elect someone to deal with a particularly difficult issue, like targeted Jones strikes, for instance, who would you want to elect? Here are your options. You could elect someone that has a set of moral rules that he or she will follow to the letter in every situation no matter what the consequences may be. You can pick that person. The second person is someone that will always side with the majority, will always attempt to maximize what he or she sees as the good or happiness in that situation. That's your second option. Or would you want to elect someone who you trusted, who you knew intimately, and who you personally believed was a very wise and discerning and good person? We know some people like that, I hope. Solid, grounded individuals. The prototypical good guy or good woman that we are sometimes blessed to know in our life. Someone with long life experience with both head book knowledge, but also practical real world knowledge as well. According to virtue ethics, the quest for morality is not the quest to find the perfect set of rules or to calculate happiness, but rather is the quest to become a wise person to become the kind of person who knows, who has the prudence to judge and discriminate when we should follow the rules strictly, when we should think about the consequences. Here she has the wisdom to act morally in the midst of ambiguous situations. I'm gonna to suggest to you that I think the kind of morality the Bible wants us to develop is a sort of kind of really intense virtue ethics. The moral and ethics teachings of the Bible, they're not meant to give us just a simple list of rules that we should blindly apply to every situation. And they're definitely not meant to turn us into like a calculating consequentialist. A wise person, 
They're trying to turn us into a certain kind of person, a wise person, a loving person. To put it into a single phrase, we would probably say a Christ-like person. When the Christian is faced with a difficult moral issue, the question that needs to be answered is not, well, what rule do I apply here? It's not what good I'm trying to maximize. It's actually, I think, that cliched phrase from Sunday school that some people still have on bracelets. It's, what would Jesus do? There is almost always some real profound wisdom at the heart of cliches. That's how they come, become cliches. They stick around. They last. Our Old Testament reading that I chose for today is my favorite example of this. And it's kind of funny. If you were paying attention to the Bible, I accidentally switched the order of them. I don't know. Some people caught it. But anyway, it works either way. But in Proverbs 26, verse 4, we find this precept, this rule or instruction. And Proverbs is just a book of wise sayings, right? It says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become a fool yourself. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become a fool yourself. What does that mean? It means don't get down in the mud, right? If someone's trying to get you riled up with some foolishness, trying to convince you that the world is flat or something, don't don't engage with them. It's not worth it. Don't don't comment on their Facebook posts. Don't yell back at them. It's just going to get them more riled up and it'll bring you down to their level. So don't do it. Don't answer a fool according to their folly. It's a wise, wise teaching, I think. The very next proverb, the very next verse says this, answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. Answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. What does that mean? Some people need to be called on their crud, on on their BS, their bologna sandwich, if I can be so crude. Some foolishness needs to be addressed, or it it might get loose and destroy the entire town. Did you know, this is a true fact, there are currently today more people that believe that the world is flat since the late 1700s. It's like had this weird resurgence in the internet age. The flat earther movement is a real thing. Maybe somebody needs to call those fools on their folly. We don't want science to go back 300 years after all. So which is it? Should we answer fools according to their folly or should we not answer fools according to their folly? The wise person, the virtuous person, the Christ-like and loving person will be able to know which to employ when. Well, so how do we become this kind of person? A lot of different ways, partly, is to do the kind of things that we've been doing as a church the past several weeks. The wise person is the kind of person who has meditated on the law of the Lord, on the story of the good God reconciling the world to himself through the work of his son, Jesus. They meditate on that law, on that story, day and night. It's the kind of person who has directly wrestled with Jesus' brutal teachings, like his teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, do good to those who will do you harm. It's the kind of person that has internalized Paul's teachings on love from 1 Corinthians. That person will have become a more Christ-like person, a more loving and virtuous person, and will therefore be in the best kind of position to handle difficult moral issues in a way that's pleasing to God. All right, I promised that we were going to do this. Now we're finally headed back to Luke 6, to Jesus' difficult teachings, and we'll see what we've learned. Last week, we focused just on Jesus' command to love your enemies as yourself. This week, we're going to consider just the first part of verse 30, Luke chapter 6, verse 30, as sort of a, um, like a test, a test case, a case study. In verse 30, Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you. Give to everyone who begs for you, from you. Let's just make this real concrete. We have all been in the position, I'm assuming, where we have been asked for money. Someone comes up to you outside of a food line or, or a dollar general downtown somewhere and asks you for a few dollars. What do you do? Sometimes, often, actually, I, I give them some money. I, I tend to give them some money. I'll try to look them in the eye, 
for a second maybe, but really I barely break my stride as I head into the store and I just kind of slip them a $5 bill, a $10 bill um, on my way in. Now I have obeyed the letter of the law here, right? In Luke 6, give to everyone that begs from you. Check, I did it. But sometimes I think that that's actually the easy way out. Sometimes I feel like I'm actually ducking my responsibility. I'm defaulting to deontology. I'm just blindly following the rules rather than striving to be a loving Christ-like person. For one thing, we've established this morning that to love like Christ means to always be seeking the good of the other person. If I have a real reason to suspect, or maybe even I know this person and I know that my $5, my $10 will be used for things that will be harmful to them, that will harm them, then that's not an act of love. We also talked about how love has time for others. Love is patient and love is kind. Sometimes I give them that $5 bill just because it's the fastest way to end that interaction. Like I said, I barely have to break my stride. I can get back to my errands ASAP, get back to the re- why, what I came here to do. And I don't have to think about their pain or their suffering any longer than necessary. And I don't think that's loving. I don't think that's very Christ-like. And so as disappointing as this may be, there is no one-size-fits-all answer here. We have to take it at a case-by-case basis while all trying to become closer to our example, to the wise and loving person represented most fully by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes, often maybe, it might mean giving them the money. If you can discern that you, or you suspect that they need that kind of help and you are equipped to offer that help, then by all means, give to everyone that begs from you. Sometimes it, maybe it means buying them lunch. Maybe it means learning the best places in town to refer them for help, memorizing the phone number to Grifton Missions or to the Salvation Army so you can direct them there each and every time. Maybe it means meeting their eyeline, asking them their name, giving them your name. This is still a really difficult job to do. I didn't like solve everything for you this week. It's really hard to become the kind of person that we can act, that can act Christianly, that can embody the person and the love of Jesus in all of their relationships and in all of their interactions, especially, sometimes especially in regards to a certain person. We can feel as if we are never going to get there. No, I, this person I cannot love. Their own black hole is too strong. It's going to suck me in to the depths. I don't know how to be Christ-like towards them. I am apparently just not virtuous enough. I'm not wise enough. First off, I would encourage you to keep trying. Don't give up. Sanctification is a lifelong process. Jesus calls us to continually be moving towards him and to becoming more like him. But I do want to conclude today by offering this bit of reassurance. I don't think we're not meant to get all the way there in this life. Becoming truly Christ-like, becoming someone that knows perfectly how to love all people, including our enemy in all situations, that process has to be completed by God at the end of days when he draws history to a close and finally brings about the redemption and the reconciliation and healing of all things. It can be difficult to, to sit in this time of waiting, this time where we can see the goal. We can see the goal. It slaps us in the face when we read the gospel stories of Jesus. But we can't quite get there by ourselves. If we try, we might make some progress, but then we slip back and we fail, and that can be a hard cycle to repeat over and over again. But we, well, we will not be there forever. We'll not be there forever. And to drive this point home, I want to just finish by simply rereading to you the end of Paul's wonderful, masterful, poetic essay on love. He says, Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. 
When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. For now, we see only in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.